My name is Matthew Cruz. I am one of the pastors in the life of Seven Mile Road, leading our Melrose congregation and mission. This is the time in our service when we press into the preaching of the word, and then we step to Jesus' table together. So this is the height and the center of our gathering. Uh, The word of God is eternally true, and it's alive, and it's active. I heard an advertisement on the way here warning us not to purchase or use fireworks in Massachusetts. So you buy them and you use them in a state like New Hampshire, but not Massachusetts. And I was just thinking, the Word of God is explosive like that, and Jesus let it be that to us this morning. So think fireworks, but not the kind that blows off a finger, the kind that lights up a soul and and is a joyful explosion in your heart and helpful to you. There's power in these words. So I'm going to read our key verses again, and I'll pray, and we'll press into this. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use that freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray together. Spirit of God, you have been poured out on all flesh. Uh, People in every tribe, every tongue, every nation within these 24 hours or so are gathering, filled with the Spirit of God to confess their sin, to believe your gospel, to hear your word, to come to your table. Uh, We do the same thing this morning. And I pray that you would be good to us, good to our sons and daughters, good to these cities that we live in, that we would be salt and light because of the power, the explosive power of the gospel of God. Give us humility and attention to receive it together this morning. I pray that you'd hear and answer. Amen. Amen. Okay, for months now, we have been beating the drum, boom, 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 over and over again of the doctrine that sits at the very center of the biblical book, the letter of Galatians. The fancy name for that truth or that doctrine is justification by faith. Here's what we've been saying since September, all of us. Every single man, every single woman in here, outside of here, who has ever lived and will ever live, everybody, and we mean both likable people and unlikable people. You know the difference? Good people and bad people, squeaky, clean moralists who have no rap sheet whatsoever, shady back alley dealing people with rap sheets like encyclopedias. Everybody. Boy Scouts who help the old lady across the street and hang on to her purse for her. And punks who knock the lady over and steal her purse. People whose lives are filled with obvious sin and hidden sin. All of us, everyone is what scripture calls a lawbreaker or sinner is our shorthand for that, by nature and by choice. That's our resume. Every one of us, regardless of our race or our sex or our height or our gender or our family or our pedigree or our resume or our sophistication, education, all, 
anything and all of it. All of us are that. And that that is very bad news when we come to see that it's true because there is a God who made us to whom we are accountable, who is holy and calls us to be holy. None of us can be good enough. None of us has been good enough. None of us can start today to start to begin to be good enough to escape the just and the necessary response of wrath from God on sin. The shorthand way to say all of that is to say that we all stand before God unjustifiable, unjustifiable, and there's nothing that we can do to change that. But the gospel, meaning the really, really good news, and we mean insane, wildly, shockingly good news, is that in love, in love, The triune God has acted for you. He's acted for you. And God the Son, who we know as Jesus is the Christ, took on flesh, stepped into our shoes. In Boston, it's white Adidas crow tops. Into those, if he came right now, into our shoes. And he lived the life that we should have lived, a justifiable life. Finally, someone did it. And then he died the death that we should have died a condemned death on a tree as a lawbreaker judged by Pilate and also an atoning death for our sins. And then he rose from the dead in victory over sin and Satan and death and hell and the grave and all of it. And now through the gospel, he offers everybody, everybody, all of us who would repent of our sin and put our trust humbly in him forgiveness of sins, the giving, the imputing of Christ's perfect righteousness to our account so that we stand before God today 100% justifiable today and forever. And that this grace is a free, unconditional, irrevocable, irrevocable, I've been working on that word, irrevocable gift from God to us. We don't deserve it. We couldn't earn it. But by faith, it's ours. And nothing can shake that. Nothing can shake that. This means that all of our sins in the past, in the present, the ones on your drive here, the ones that you will commit this afternoon, and all of your sins into the future, all of them are irrelevant when it comes to this truth. We stand not on our own doing, but on Christ's doing In him, it's Jesus plus nothing is everything that we need. Okay, this is Melrose. No one said amen, but I understand that in your heart and your mind you were saying, (laughs) preach that big man with the red face. Okay, this doctrine of the freeness and the all-sufficiency of grace is so life-giving to so many of us, right? We, We were dead and we would be dead without it. But what we want to talk about today is that it can also be a very frightening, very scary doctrine. It is very, very frightening to many of us. In fact, if you study church history, you will see that many have heard this doctrine, justification by faith alone, and been horrified by it. 
Anybody in here like that genre of film called horror? You know horror flicks? A couple of people nodded at me. So I am a horror movie wuss. You know that kind of a person? As soon as the violin starts to play, and you hear the chainsaw humming, I'm out of the room right away, covering my eyes. I got a text message I got to respond to. I'm a horror movie wuss. Let me tell you why. In 1981, I was eight years old, and my parents had some kind of church event that they were going to. For some inexplicable reason, they hired Don Bracco to babysit for us. Dawn was the kind of teenage girl that you would not trust with a goldfish <laughs> or a hamster, no less your only two, two only begotten sons. But this thing happened. It happened. And she says to us, hey guys, let's watch a movie. They had just invented the VCR, 1981, and she pulls out Children of the Corn. And I'm seven and James is six and we crawl up on her lap and we watch the movie like this without blinking the whole time. <laughs> tighter, tighter clinging to this teenage babysitter. I can still see the big, I don't know what it's called, but the thing that goes through the fields and cuts the wheat down. Tractor. Yes, that thing. Oof. Scared to death. I've never recovered. Horrified. That fear is the way that some people respond to the preaching of justification by faith. They hear it and they want out of the room. They hear it and they think, if you preach that, somebody's going to get hurt. This is going to go badly. This is a dangerous doctrine. It sounds dangerous. And here's the kind of questions that they ask. These might have been in your mind in the last six months of preaching so, so much on this truth. Doesn't this doctrine set up a scenario where sin will now abound? If we tell people, you're all set, you've got your ticket to the kingdom of heaven, Jesus paid it all, your sin, all of it is washed away, doesn't that strike at the root of any motivation for holiness? If I can sin and all the consequences are removed, there is no condemnation possible for me, isn't that going to cause my shoulders to shrug and me to be like, nice, I can just sin wherever I please? Why would anyone pursue the harder road of self-denial if their actions don't matter in the long run. And the big accusation, the big fear is this. Isn't justification by faith a free pass to sinful living? Because it really sounds like this doctrine is the kind of doctrine that the people who run Las Vegas would spin. Anybody pay attention to the Las Vegas campaign that was running two or three years ago? Did you hear it? The advertisements? Here, here's what they said. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Okay, I need you to feel this. That's the gospel of Las Vegas. That's the gospel promise that they pitch. Vegas' good news is this right here. You come vacation here and you do whatever you want 
You sin as bad as you want. You can break all the commands in like a 48-hour weekend, all of them. Adultery, gluttony, gambling. You can steal Mike Tyson's tiger. That's only funny if you saw this horrible movie on a plane ride. (laughs) You name it, you do whatever you want, and Vegas promises that it all goes away as soon as you check in on the flight home. Now, when my high school buddies from Savio hear that gospel and they believe it, what do they do? They get on a flight and they plunge into sin, into sin. And many holy people fear that that is the same end that the robust and the unfettered preaching of justification by faith alone is going to lead to. Grace and I were at a family wedding. It was a ball. And I ended up having this conversation with a cousin of hers who is a holy and virtuous and born-again, Jesus-loving woman who heard the gospel in the context of a Catholic retreat that she was at. So she's a part of a Catholic church. And we were talking gospel, and she said to me, Matt, you and Grace confuse me because I see virtue in you And I don't expect that from Protestants. That's what she said. So I was like, you need to explain that to me. She said, okay, we've always been taught to watch out for Protestants, you know, Reformed Christians like us, because they tell people, Jesus paid it all. Sin doesn't account anymore. You've got a free pass to heaven. And so Protestant people tend to live nominally Christian lives, very carnal, very worldly, because the Reformed doctrine of grace leads to no concern for virtue or holiness. Right about now, Will Smith was kicking, getting jiggy with it in the background. So I kicked some Martin Luther on her, which is always fun to do in a conversation with a friend who's Catholic, and I said, here's why what you're accusing me of is wrong. Let me tell you why this makes perfect sense if you would see virtue in me. Martin Luther, 99 Theses, said it like this. Justification is by faith alone, but never by a faith that remains alone. And then I said, do you feel that? I told her the true and justifying faith is like Ben and Jerry's Chunky Monkey ice cream. It is jam-packed with good works, virtue, and holiness. Then this Motown song came on, so I was like, we got to talk later. Grace and I are dancing together right now. But if I had more time to talk with her, I would have gone to the text that we're looking at together this morning. Because as clearly as any, this is one of them that shows that gospel grace and the freedom that it procures for you is not a free pass to sinful living, but it is rocket fuel toward holy living because justifying faith works through love, and love always issues in virtue, in holiness, in the keeping of God's law. Okay, that's our big idea. Let's run through the text and see if we can find it together in there. This is the first thing that he said. For you were called to freedom, brothers. 
Brothers is the masculine inclusive. He's speaking to everyone in the life of this church. Men and women, all of us, called to freedom. That's what he'd been saying. He says it about 200 times in these six chapters, and he says it again. Now, here's our question. What is the nature of that freedom? So if this was a small group, we'd talk about it together. Think on this. What is the nature of that freedom? We say it like this. It's a soul freedom, or it's a freedom of conscience. It is freedom from that curse, that just curse that loomed over your life and had you in handcuffs knowing that a verdict of guilty was coming on my life. And it is freedom from that burden of saying, I have to be good enough. I have to be good enough. Was I good enough today to stay in the good graces of God? Am I sure that my life is going to be good enough? That's a prison cell. It is the freedom from never knowing for sure if everything that you've done matches up with all that God has required. Freedom. So say it like this, in Christ we stand like Andy Dufresne at the end of Shawshank Redemption, like this. Have you seen that? That's what we've been called to. Only we didn't crawl through 500 yards of foul-smelling whatever it was that Morgan Freeman could not imagine. We got to our freedom in Christ by trusting, just faith alone, in the work of Christ for us out of the jail cell of sin and works into the sweet reign of gospel grace. We were called to that kind of freedom. Now, where did Andy Dufresne go with his freedom? Somebody in this room has got to know the name of that city. Mexico is good. Oh, this is embarrassing. All right, say Wataneo. He went to a beach uh, a beachfront city in Mexico. That's where his freedom drove him and his buddy joined him. Here's our question, the big one for today. Where does this freedom lead us to? Do we go, nice, I'm all set with God now. Now I can just go sin. Is that the city that we end up in? No. After hammering all letter long on the freedom and the finality of grace, Paul now begins to paint a picture for us of what the justified life looks like. And the first thing that he says to us is this, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Isn't that beautiful? Your freedom is real. Your future sins are covered. There's no more uncertainty. But that freedom is has a certain direction. It's going somewhere. And the end of that life is not a life of reckless sin. No way. The word flesh in here is that Greek word S-A-R-X. Paul uses it all the time in his writing. Sometimes it just refers to the physical body. But when you see it in a context like this, it means your old life. It means your sinful nature and all of the perversions and all of the sinfulness, and all of the worldliness that comes with who you are before Jesus makes you new. That's you, the old flesh, the language, the attitudes, the deceit, the lust, the greed, the habits, the rhythms of your life that were built into you from birth. He says that is not the end. Justification has not been given to send you back 
down that road. Opportunity is a very helpful word in here. It means an occasion or a chance or an open door or a springboard. Do not use this freedom as a springboard into sin. When I was really, really little, we would go to Jones Beach in Long Island on a wicked hot summer day. Uh, We took a friend once, and we lost him for three hours. This is my childhood, Don Bracco babysitting. We're losing kids at the beach who don't belong to us. It was rough. You know those kids who just disappear and make like 10 friends and come back like, what? What happened? Um, There was also this pool at Jones Beach. Now, I'm 41, so this is way before there was all these safety regulations, you know, in American culture, helmets on bikes and all that stuff. There was two diving boards at this pool, no lifeguards, two diving boards, one normal one and then one high one. And man, we loved going up to the high one, like every seventh kid would land on the cement beside the pool and they wheel him off and we'd just keep jumping. That's what this was. And I can remember getting up on the edge and looking down and just getting ready to plunge into that warm yellow water. Talk about (laughs) the beach. What Paul is saying here is, that is not what gospel freedom is for. It is not a springboard for you to not plunge back into the cesspool of everything that Jesus has freed you from. That is not what this is for. Instead, what are you to do with the freedom that God gives you? Do not use it as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So here's what we mean by fireworks. This is just so much amazing going on in these few words. So I love when scripture is counterintuitive like this. You are not expecting to read this, right? Your Bible should constantly surprise you. All letter long, what's he talking about? Freedom, 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 freedom. And now he says what? The gospel sets you free to Become a slave. Dulos is the word, a bond servant. In other words, when the gospel takes root inside of your soul, it doesn't lead to a self interested and sinful life. No. It leads to a self forgetful and selfless and other centered life. It's not setting you free to indulge in all of your wants and sinful desires. It is setting you free to now forget about yourself and to begin to live with God and others in mind. It's a beautiful upside-down nature of the kingdom of God, right? You're set free so that you can be the best slave that there is. And what is the engine that is driving you happily dying to yourself and taking up service to others? What's the word? Love. Love. Through love, now you go serve one another. Okay, we heard this word love earlier in the passage that McCann read to us, and this is what he said. He said, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything In other words, not your good works, your bad works, what you did, what you didn't do. That's not gospel. Here's what counts. Faith 
And then he adds this descriptor, wonderful. I don't know, is that a prepositional phrase? Whatever that is with the I-N-G in there. Faith, justifying faith, what? Working through love. In other words, good works, bad works don't matter here. Only faith does. But that faith, justifying faith, is never an intellectual or academic or detached theological, okay, you convinced my head kind of thing, and now I'm a Christian. No way. It always works where? In the heart, at the seat of our affections, in the will, in the soul. It is marked by, this word has the idea of like energized by love. Justifying faith is energized by love. Okay, think about it like this. When you finally see and finally believe the gospel, you are on the receiving end of the love of God in Christ like you have never, ever been before. I mean, I don't know what the best metaphor is for you. It's like a sledgehammer of love. Does that do it? It's like a hurricane of love. It's like lifting your gun in the middle of a paintball battle and everybody just unloads on you full of love. The karate kid crane kick to the face full of love. You need me to keep going? It is love like you have never experienced before. The love of God. You can't miss this in your Bible. That's why Christians talk about the love of God so much. Anywhere that you see new birth, you see love right there. For God so loved the world. You feel that? In love, he predestined us to become his. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave himself to be the propitiation for our sins. Paul says it in Galatians, Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. And that love that has collided into our souls when we believed and were justified by faith now that animates and energizes and propels our believing for the rest of our lives. Every day, faith working through love. Believing the gospel, energized by love. I need you to see this. Justifying faith is not a selfish or mathematical, computing, manipulating thing. Okay, sometimes we hear the gospel and we think, if I say yes to that, it equals Heaven for me, so I'm in. I've done the math in my head. That's not justifying faith. It doesn't think, how can I get to heaven and avoid hell and get what I want? Justifying faith is this. It's the faith of a lover, you know? You're just overcome by someone's love for you, and you respond and you say, I'm all in. You are forgetting about yourself. It is a God-centered act. A Christian is not someone who has made a calculated decision to follow Jesus. A Christian is someone whose heart has been overrun by divine love. And because love is at the center of gospel faith, what kind of a life results from you believing the gospel? A holy life, a life that is packed with virtue a life that finally begins to live right and keep the law. That's because love always issues in a keeping of the law. 
And that's what he says directly in our text. This is our last verse. For the whole law gets fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Do you feel that? In other words, far from you now diving into a law-breaking life because you've got Jesus' ticket to his heaven, because you've got the guarantees of justification. Far from that, when you believe the gospel, that believing works through love, is energized by love, which now propels you to do what's right and to finally keep the moral law of God. But you don't do it in a checklist kind of way. What's command number seven? Oh man, did I do that one? Let me make sure. You do it in this natural new way because your heart, your affections, your motivations, they've all been changed by the grace of God. And now as we are conformed to the image of Christ, we start to love like God loves and we start to live like God intended for us to live. And what happens? You love your neighbor as you love yourself. And you begin to live holy and virtuous life. So just think practically about how this works. He's focusing here on the second tablet of the law, the last six of the big ten commands. What does God require there and how does love help us keep it? Honor your father and your mother. Justifying faith, working through love, gets you there. Mom, I love you. Dad, I love you. Jesus has birthed in me a love for you that I didn't have before. How can I serve you, obey you, make much of you? Because you're believing the gospel and that faith is working through love, you begin to live holy. Sixth command, you shall not murder. Justifying faith, working through love, gets you there. How will you take the life of someone that your heart is beating with love for? How will you close your fists at someone if you're believing the gospel and it's being energized by love? Your hands open up. You begin to want the best for others. Not only will you not kill, you won't even do what may not be in their best interest. That's beautiful. You shall not commit adultery. Justifying faith, working through love, gets you there. Never forget this. We had a 20-year-old guy come to repentance and faith in the gospel, just overrun by the love of Jesus in the life of our church. And he had a girlfriend, and they were fornicating away, as you would expect them to be doing. All of a sudden, this guy gets saved. So he talks with me about it, and then he goes and talks with her about it. And they sit and they have this conversation, and he tells her, I believe the gospel, whatever language you would use for that, Jesus has forgiven my sin. I can't walk in sin anymore. Uh, we're not going to have sex anymore. And she cried. And her exact words to her were, but that, that's how I know that you love me. And over the couple of months, I mean, they ended up breaking up, but over the couple of months, he was able to be a witness to what true love is for this girl and said to her, you, you have this backwards. It's because I love you now in a different way that I'm not taking what I can get from you and I'm not involving you in sexual sin and I am looking for your purity before God and I want the best for you. Me abstaining is showing you great love. 
And that was very hard for her to understand because she had not yet seen the glories of the gospel. But faith was working through love in this guy's life toward what? Virtue, holiness, purity. If you are filled with love, you don't commit adultery. You love the other person that you would be dragging into sin. You love the children and the families and the communities around that, and you are driven to holiness. You start keeping the law as you believe the gospel. You shall not steal. Justifying faith, working through love, gets you there. Why would I come take something that belongs to you for myself without you looking if I'm filled up with love for you. I'm giving, not taking. A life of virtue results. I'm obeying the law. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Justifying faith, working through love, gets you there. How could I say something untrue about you if my heart is filled up with love for you? You shall not covet. Justifying faith, working through love, gets you there. This is huge. Why would I not rejoice when you prosper? Why would I not be pumped if you hit the lottery? Why would I not be so excited about the gifts and the graces that God has given to you if I've been set free in the gospel? No, no, I'm filled up with love now. There is no coveting in a life that has believed the gospel. Do you feel all of this? This would be a holy life. And where does all of that begin? It doesn't begin. You know, where my conversation at that wedding wanted it to begin with a tempering and a limiting and a denying of the doctrine of justification by faith through the free grace of God. No, it begins with a more intense and a more deep and a more ferocious embrace of it. The deeper that you go with gospel grace, the tighter that your heart level grasp on the love of God that was shown for you at Calvary, the more certain that you are down in your bones that you have been redeemed by the grace of God and your sin is no more The more that you believe, the more love that is there, the more virtue and holiness that your life bears. In other words, the more fiery your faith, the more thick your love, the more holy your life. And we say it like this, justification by faith is rocket fuel for holy living. Think of the holiest people that you have met And I don't mean they kept their nose clean and they did some good things. I mean selfless, self-forgetful, holy. Are those not also the people who have the most deeply grasped the love of God in Christ, the freeness of grace, the finished work of Jesus as their righteousness? Those two are not enemies. You don't have to be scared of this. They go together. All right, so think this morning and think this week. Am I there? Am I there? So the first question is, have you thrown down your resume and all of your machinations and your works 
and thrown up your hands and said, Jesus, I'm dead without you. If you don't be everything for me, it's over because I can't get there. Have you stood outside in the rain, outside of Shawshank Prison, with your hands up in the air, weeping at the grace of God, coming to receive his gift of righteousness so that you know that you know that you know that he's yours and you're his forever and nothing can change that. If you've never gotten there, get there this morning. Take hold of the promises of the gospel by faith. If you have gotten there, please don't leave that place to now go do better works and have virtue in your life. Come back to that place every day, every day. Why do people lift their hands in worship when we sing? Andy Dufresne, they've been set free by the grace of God. When you wake up in the morning, do you wake up with your arms shooting to heaven and saying, Jesus, fill me with faith today, energized by love so that I may be holy. Like my dream for this church is that we would believe and believe and believe and therefore love and love and love and therefore be holy and be holy and be holy. Take hold of that with me. Let's pray together. Father, this is the best news ever. This doesn't start with us. It does not start with us. This starts with you, and we just get caught up in this. I pray that you would convince us and our sons and our daughters who need to believe this too. That justification is by faith alone. That's good news. That all of our sins forever are washed away. As far as east goes from west, you can't find them because they're buried. That as we believe that gospel, we are receiving love and bending love out. Would you please let love be the ethic of Seven Mile Road? And that that love would issue in generosity and sexual purity, and service of one another, and joy and gladness, and that the world of Melrose and Boston would see it and be shocked to see what it looks like when a people are set free to be holy. This is my prayer. I pray that you do it in each one of our souls. I pray that we would live and believe and sing like it's true for your glory and for our good. Help us to forget about ourselves and in love to serve one another. Hear my prayer and answer.